Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of E.E. E. Doc Smith's Skylark of Space. I'm your narrator, Jim Campanella. The Skylark of Space by Edward E. Doc Smith was written between 1915 and 1921, while Smith was working on his doctorate. Though the original idea for the novel was Smith's, he co-wrote the first part of the novel with Lee Hawkins Garby, the wife of his college classmate and later neighbor Carl Garby. The Skylark of Space is considered to be one of the earliest novels of interstellar travel and the first example of space opera. Originally serialized in 1928 in the magazine Amazing Stories, it was first published in book form in 1946 by the Buffalo Book Company. The Skylark of Space pits the idealistic protagonist, Dick Seaton, against antagonist Mark Blackie Duquesne. At the beginning of the story, Seaton accidentally discovers a workable space drive by combining pure copper with a newly discovered fictional element X in solution. Having failed to recreate the effect, Seton realizes that the missing component is a field generated by Duquesne's particle accelerator and thereafter sets up a business with his millionaire friend Martin Crane to build a spaceship. Duquesne conspires to sabotage Seton's spaceship and build his own from Seton's plans, which he uses to kidnap Seton's fiancée, Dorothy Vainman, in exchange for Element X. And the story just picks up from there. The story is the quintessential space opera, and we think you'll love it, especially if you've never read it before. And now, Skylark of Space. Chapter 1. The Occurrence of the Impossible. Petrified with astonishment, Richard Seaton stared after the copper steam bath upon which he had been electrolyzing his solution of X, the unknown metal. For as soon as he had removed the beaker, the heavy bath had jumped endwise from under his hand as though it were alive. It had flown with terrific speed over the table, smashing apparatus and bottles of chemicals on its way, and was even now disappearing through the open window. He seized his prism binoculars and focused them upon the flying vessel, a speck in the distance now. Through the glass he saw that it did not fall to the ground, but continued on in a straight line, only its rapidly diminishing size showing the enormous velocity with which it was moving. It grew smaller and smaller, and in a few moments disappeared utterly. The chemist turned as though in a trance. How could this be? The copper bath he had used for months was gone, literally gone like a shot with nothing to make it go. Nothing, that is, except an electric cell and a few drops of unknown solution. He looked at the empty space where it had stood, at the broken glass covering his laboratory table, and again stared out the window. He was aroused from his stunned inaction by the entrance of his laboratory assistant and silently motioned him to help clean up the wreckage. What happened, doctor? asked the assistant. Search me, Dan. I wish I knew, responded Seaton absently, lost in wonder at the incredible phenomenon of which he had just been a witness. Ferdinand Scott, a chemist employed in the next room, entered breezily. Hello, Dickie. Thought I heard a racket in here, the newcomer remarked. Then he saw the assistant busily mopping up the reeking mess of chemicals. Great balls of fire, he exclaimed. What have you been celebrating? Had an explosion? 
How, what, and why? I can tell you the what and part of the how, Seaton replied thoughtfully. But as to the why, I'm completely in the dark. Here's all I know about it. And in a few words, he related the foregoing incident. Scott's face showed in turn interest, amazement, and pitying alarm. He took Seaton by the arm. Dick, old top, I never knew you to drink or dope, but this stuff sure came out of either a bottle or a needle. Did you see a pink serpent carrying it away? Take my advice, old son. If you want to stay in Uncle Sam's service, then lay off the stuff, whatever it is. It's bad enough to come down here so far gone that you wreck most of your apparatus and lose the rest of it. But to pull a yarn like that, that's going too far. The chief will have to ask for your resignation, sure. Why don't you take a couple of days leave and straighten up? Seaton paid him no attention, and Scott returned to his own laboratory, shaking his head sadly. Seaton, with his mind in a whirl, walked slowly to his desk, picked up his blackened and battered briar pipe, and sat down to study what he had done, or what could possibly have happened, to result in such an unbelievable infraction of all the laws of mechanics and gravity. He knew that he was sober and sane, that the thing had actually happened, but why and how? All his scientific training told him it was impossible. It was unthinkable that an inert mass of metal should fly off into space without any applied force. Since it had actually happened, there must have been applied an enormous and hitherto unknown force. But what could that force be? The reason for this unbelievable manifestation of energy was certainly somewhere in the solution, the electrolytic cell, or the steam bath. Concentrating all the power of his highly trained analytical mind upon the problem, deaf and blind to everything else, as was his wont when he was deeply interested, he sat motionless, with his forgotten pipe clenched between his teeth. Hour after hour he sat there. Most of his fellow chemists finished the day's work and left the building, and the room slowly darkened, with the coming of night. Finally, he stood up and turned on the lights. Tapping the stem of his pipe against his palm, he spoke aloud. Absolutely, the only unusual incidents in this whole job were a slight slopping over of the solution onto the copper and the short-circuiting of the wires when I grabbed the beaker. Now, I wonder if it will repeat if I... He took a piece of copper wire and dipped it into the solution of the mysterious metal. Upon withdrawing it, he saw that the wire had changed its appearance, the X having apparently replaced a layer of the original metal. Standing well clear of the table, he touched the wire with the conductors. There was a slight spark, a snap, and it disappeared. Simultaneously, there was a sharp sound like that made by the impact of a rifle bullet, and Seaton saw, with amazement, a small round hole where the wire had gone completely through the heavy brick wall. Now there was power, and how. But whatever it was, it was a fact, a demonstrable fact. Suddenly he realized he was hungry, and glancing at his watch, saw that it was ten o'clock, and he had had a date for dinner at seven with his fiancée at her home, their first dinner since their engagement. Cursing himself for an idiot, he hastily left the laboratory. Going down the corridor, he saw that Mark Duquesne, a fellow research man, was also working late. He left the building, mounted his motorcycle, and was soon tearing up Connecticut Avenue toward his sweetheart's home. On the way, an idea struck him like a blow of a fist. 
He forgot even his motorcycle, and only the instinct of the trained rider saved him from disaster during the next few blocks. As he drew near his destination, however, he made a determined effort to pull himself together. What a stunt! He muttered ruefully to himself as he wondered what he had done. What a stupid jerk! If she doesn't give me the bum's rush for this, I'll never do it again if I live to be a million years old. Chapter 2 As evening came on and the fireflies began flashing over the grounds of her luxurious Chevy Chase home, Dorothy Vainman went upstairs to dress. Mrs. Vainman's eyes followed her daughter's tall, trim figure more than a little apprehensively. She was wondering about this engagement. It was true that Richard was a fine chap and might make a name for himself, but at present he was a nobody, and socially he would always be a nobody. And men of wealth, of distinction, of impeccable social status had paid court. But Dorothy, no, stubborn was not too strong a term. When Dorothy made up her mind, it was made up. Unaware of her mother's look, Dorothy went happily up the stairs. She glanced at the clock and saw that it was only a little after six. She sat down at her dressing table, upon which stood a picture of Richard, a strong, not unhandsome face, with keen, wide-set gray eyes, the wide brow of the thinker, surmounted by thick, unruly dark hair, the firm, square jaw of the born fighter. Such was the man whose vivid personality, fierce impetuosity, and indomitable perseverance had set him apart from all other men ever since their first meeting, and who had rapidly cleared the field of all other aspirants for her favor. Her breath came faster, and her cheeks showed a lovelier color as she sat there, the lights playing in her heavy auburn hair, and a tender smile upon her lips. Dorothy dressed with unusual care, and the last touches deftly made, went downstairs and out upon the porch to wait for her guest. Half an hour passed. Mrs. Vainman came to the door and said anxiously, I wonder if anything could have happened to him. Of course there hasn't. Dorothy tried to keep all concern out of her voice. Traffic jams? Or perhaps he's been picked up for speeding? Can Alice keep dinner a little longer? To be sure, her mother answered and disappeared. But when another half an hour had passed, Dorothy went in, holding her head somewhat higher than usual and wearing a say-something-if-you-dare expression on her face. The meal was eaten in polite disregard of the unused plate. The family left the table. For Dorothy, the evening was endless. But at the usual time, it was ten o'clock, and then ten-thirty, and then Seaton appeared. Dorothy opened the door, but Seaton did not come in. He stood close to her, but did not touch her. His eyes searched her face anxiously. Upon his face was a look of indecision, almost fright, a look so foreign to his usual expression that the girl smiled in spite of herself. I'm awfully sorry, sweetheart. I couldn't help it. You've got a right to be sore. How to be kicked from here to there. But are you too sore to let me talk to you for a couple of minutes? I was never so mad at anybody in my life until I started getting stared witless. I simply couldn't and can't believe you'd do anything like that on purpose. Come on in. She closed the door. He half extended his arms and then paused irresolute, like a puppy hoping for a pat but expecting a kick. 
She grinned and then came into his arms. What happened, Dick? She asked later. Something terrible to make you act like this. I've never seen you act so, so funny. Not terrible, Dottie, just extraordinary. So outrageously extraordinary that before I begin, I wish you'd look me in the eye and tell me if you have any doubts about my sanity. She led him into the living room and held his face up to the light and made a pretense of studying his eyes. Richard Bollinger Seaton, I certify that you are entirely sane. In fact, quite the sanest man I've ever known. Now, tell me the worst. Did you blow up the bureau with a C-bomb? What? Nothing like that, he laughed. Just a, a thing I can't understand. You know I've been reworking the platinum wastes that have been accumulating for the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, you told me you'd recovered a small fortune in platinum. And some of those other metals? You thought you'd found a brand new one, right? Well, I sure did. After I separated out everything I could identify, there was quite a lot of something left. Something that didn't respond to any tests I knew or could find in the literature. Well, that brings us up to today. As a last resort, because there wasn't anything else left to do, I started testing for transuronics. And there it was. A stable, well, almost stable, isotope. Up where almost no stable isotopes are supposed to exist. Up where I would have bet my last shirt no such isotope could possibly exist. Well, I was trying to electrolyze it out when the fireworks started. The solution started to fizz over. So I grabbed the beaker fast and the wires dropped onto the steam bath, and the whole outfit, except the beaker, took off out the window at six or eight times the speed of sound in a straight line without dropping a foot as far as I could keep it in sight with a pair of good binoculars. My hunch is that it's still going. That's what happened. It's enough to knock any physicist into an outside loop, and with my one-cylinder brain, I got to thinking about it, and simply didn't come to until after 10 o'clock. All I can say is, I'm really sorry, and I love you, as much as I ever did or could, more if possible, and I always will. Can you let this go, this time, please? Dick, oh, Dick. There was much, much more, but eventually, Seaton mounted his motorcycle, and Dorothy walked beside him down the street. A final kiss and the man drove away. After the last faint glimmer of red taillight had disappeared into the darkness, Dorothy made her way to her room, breathing a long and slightly tremulous but supremely happy sigh. Chapter 3 Seton's childhood had been spent in the mountains of northern Idaho, a region not much out of the pioneer stage and offering few inducements to intellectual effort. He could only dimly remember his mother, a sweet, gentle woman with a great love for books, but his father, big Fred Seaton, a man of but one love, almost filled the vacant place. Fred owned a quarter section of virgin white pine timber, and in that splendid grove he established a home for himself and his motherless boy. In front of the cabin lay a level strip of meadow, beyond which rose a magnificent snow-crowned peak that caught the earliest rays of the sun. This mountain, dominating the entire countryside, 
was to the boy a challenge, question, and a secret. He accepted the challenge, scaling its steep sides, hunting its forests and fishing its streams. He toughened his sturdy young body by days and nights upon its slope. He puzzled over the question of its origin as he lay upon the needles under some monster pine. He put staggering questions to his father, and when in books he found some partial answers, his joy was complete. He discovered some of the mountain's secrets then, some of the laws that govern the world of matter, some of the beginnings man's mind had made toward understanding the hidden mechanisms of nature's great simplicity. Each taste of knowledge whetted his appetite for more. Books, books, and more books. More and more he devoured them, finding in them meat for the hunger that filled him, answers to the questions that haunted him. After Big Fred lost his life in a forest fire that destroyed his property, Seaton turned his back upon the woods forever. He worked his way through high school and won a scholarship at college. Study was a pleasure to his keen mind, and he had ample time for athletics, for which his backwoods life had fitted him outstandingly. He went out for everything and excelled in football and tennis. In spite of the fact that he had to work his way, he was popular with his college mates, and his popularity was not lessened by an almost professional knowledge of sleight of hand. His long, strong fingers could move faster than the eye could follow, and many a lively college party watched in vain to see how he did what he did. After graduating with the highest honors as a physical chemist, he was appointed research fellow at a great university, where he won his Ph.D. by brilliant research upon rare metals, his dissertation having the lively title of some observations upon certain properties of certain metals, including certain transuranic elements. Soon afterwards, he had his own room in the rare metals laboratory in Washington, D.C. He was a striking figure, well over six feet in height, broad-shouldered, narrow-waisted, a man of tremendous physical strength. He did not let himself grow soft in his laboratory job, but kept in hard, fine condition. He spent most of his spare time playing tennis, swimming, and motorcycling. As a tennis player, he quickly became well-known in Washington sporting and social circles. During the district tournament, he met M. Reynolds Crane, known to only a few of his intimates as Martin. The multimillionaire, explorer, archaeologist, sportsman, who was then district singles champion, Seaton had cleared the lower half of the list and played Crane in the final round. Crane succeeded in retaining his title, but only after five of the most grueling, most bitterly contested sets ever seen in Washington. Impressed by Seaton's powerful slashing game, Crane suggested they train together as a doubles team. Seaton accepted instantly, and the combination was highly effective. Practicing almost daily, each came to know the other as a man of his own kind, and a real friendship grew up between them. When the Crane-Seaton team had won the district championship and had gone to the semifinals of the national before losing, the two were upon a footing which most brothers would have envied. Their friendship was such that neither Crane's immense wealth and high social standing, nor Seaton's comparative poverty and lack of standing, offered any obstacle whatsoever. Their comradeship was the same whether they were in Seton's modest room or in Crane's palatial yacht. 
Crane had never known the lack of anything that money could buy. He had inherited his fortune and had little or nothing to do with its management, preferring to delegate that job to financial specialists. However, he was in no sense an idle rich man with no purpose in life. As well as being an explorer and an archaeologist and a sportsman, he was also an engineer, and a damn good one, and a rocket instrument man second to none in the world. The old Crane estate in Chevy Chase was now, of course, Martin's, and he had left it pretty much as it was. He had, however, altered one room, the library, and it was now strangely typical of the man. It was a large room, very long with many windows. At one end was a huge fireplace, before which Crane often sat with his long legs outstretched, studying one or several books from the cases close at hand. The essential furnishings were of a rigid simplicity, but the treasures he had gathered transformed the room into a veritable museum. He played no instrument, but in a corner stood a magnificent piano, bare of any ornament, and a Stradivarius reposed in a special cabinet. Few people were asked to play either one of those instruments, but to those few Crane listened in silence, and his brief words of thanks showed his real appreciation of the music. He made few friends, not because he hoarded his friendship, but because, even more than most rich men, he had been forced to erect around his real self an almost impenetrable screen. As for women, Crane frankly avoided them, partly because his greatest interests in life were things in which women had neither interest nor place, but mostly because he had for years been the prime target of the man-hunting debutantes and the matchmaking mothers of three continents. Dorothy Vainman, with whom he had become acquainted through his friendship with Seton, had been admitted to his friendship. Her friend comradeship was a continuing revelation, and it was she who had last played for him. She and Seton had been caught near his home by a sudden shower and had dashed in for shelter. While the rain beat outside, Crane had suggested that she pass the time by playing his fiddle. Dorothy, a doctor of music and an accomplished violinist, realized with the first sweep of the bow that she was playing an instrument such as she had known only in her dreams and promptly forgot everything else. She forgot the rain, the listeners, the time, and the place. She simply poured into that wonderful violin everything she had of beauty, of tenderness, and of artistry. Sure, true, and full, the tones filled the big room, and in Crane's vision there rose a home filled with happy work, laughter, and companionship. Sensing the girl's dreams as the music filled his ears, he realized as never before in his busy and purposeful life what a home with the right woman could be like. No thought of love for Dorothy entered his mind. He knew that the love existing between her and Dick was of the sort that only death could alter, but he knew she had unwittingly given him a great gift. Often thereafter, in his lonely hours, he saw that dream home and knew that nothing less than its realization would ever satisfy him. Chapter 4 Returning to his boarding house, Seaton undressed and went to bed. But he didn't go to sleep. He knew that he had seen what could very well become a workable space drive that afternoon. After an hour of trying to force himself to sleep, he gave up, went to his desk, and started to study. The more he studied, the more strongly convinced he became that his first thought was right, that this thing could become a space drive. 
By breakfast time, he had the beginnings of a tentative theory roughed out. Also, he had gained some idea of the nature and magnitude of the obstacles to overcome. Arriving at the laboratory, he found that Scott had spread the news of his adventure, and his room was soon the center of interest. He described what he had seen and done to the impromptu assembly of scientists, and was starting in on the explanation he had deduced when he was interrupted by Ferdinand Scott. "'Quick, Dr. Watson, the needle!' he exclaimed. Seizing a huge pipette from a rack, he went through the motions of injecting its contents into Seaton's arm. "'It does sound like a combination of science fiction and Sherlock Holmes,' one of the visitors remarked. "'Nobody home, you mean,' Scott said, and a general chorus of friendly but skeptical jives followed. "'Wait a minute, you hidebound dopes. I'll show you,' Seaton snapped. He dipped a piece of copper wire into his solution. It did not turn brown, and when he touched it with his conductors, nothing happened. The group melted away. As they left, some of the men maintained a pitying silence. But Seaton heard one half-smothered chuckle and several remarks about cracking under the strain. Bitterly humiliated at the failure of his demonstration, Seaton scowled morosely at the offending wire. Why should the thing work twice yesterday and not even once today? He reviewed his theory and could find no flaw in it. There must have been something, something going on last night that wasn't going on now. Something capable of affecting ultra-fine structure. It had to be either in the room or very close by. And no ordinary generator or x-ray machine could possibly have had this effect. There was one possibility, and only one. The machine in Duquesne's room next to his own. The machine he himself had every once in a while helped rebuild. It was not a cyclotron, not a betatron. In fact, it had as yet no official name. Unofficially, it was the what's-it-tron, or maybe the maybe-tron, or the it-ain't-so-tron, or any one of many less descriptive and more profane titles which he, Duquesne, and the other researchers used among themselves. It didn't take up much room. It didn't weigh 10,000 tons. It did not require a million kilowatts of power. Nonetheless, it was theoretically capable of affecting superfine structure. But in the next room? Seaton doubted it. However, there was nothing else, and it had been running the night before. Its glare was unique and unmistakable. Knowing that Duquesne would turn his machine on very shortly, Seaton sat in suspense, staring at the wire. Suddenly, the subdued reflection of the familiar glare appeared on the wall outside his door, and simultaneously the treated wire turned brown. Heaving a profound sigh of relief, Seaton again touched the bit of metal from the wires from the Redeker cell. It disappeared instantly with a high, whining sound. Seaton started for the door to call his neighbors in for another demo, but in mid-stride changed his mind. He wouldn't tell anybody anything until he knew something about the thing himself. He had to find out what it was, what it did, and how and why it did it, or if it could even be controlled. That meant time, apparatus, and above all, money. Money meant Crane, and Martin would be interested anyway. Seaton made out a leave slip for the rest of the day and was soon piloting his motorcycle out Connecticut Avenue and into Crane's private drive. Swinging under the imposing port cochere, he jammed on his brakes and stopped in a shower of gravel. 
a perilous two inches from granite. He dashed up the steps and held his fingers firmly against the bell button. The door was opened hastily by Crane's Japanese servant, whose face lit upon seeing his visitor. Hello, Shiro. Is the Honorable Son of Heaven up yet? Yes, sir, but he is at present in his bath. Tell him to snap it up, please. Tell him I've got a thing on fire that'll break him right off at the ankles. Bowing the guest to a chair in the library, Shiro hurried away. Returning shortly, he placed before Seaton the Post, the Herald, and a jar of Seaton's favorite brand of tobacco, and said with his unfailing bow, Mr. Crane will appear in less than one moment, sir. Seaton filled and lit his briar and paced up and down the room, smoking furiously. In a short time, Crane came in. Good morning, Dick. The men shook hands cordially. Your message was slightly garbled in transmission. Something about a fire and ankles is all that came through? What fire and whose ankles were or about to be broken? Seaton repeated himself. Ah, yes, I thought it must have been something like that. Well, while I have breakfast, will you have lunch? Thanks, Mart. Guess I will. I was too excited to eat much of anything this morning. A table appeared, and the two men sat down. I'll just spring it onto you cold, I guess. Just what would you think of working with me on a widget to liberate and control the entire constituent energy of metallic copper? Not in little dribbles or drabs like fission or fusion but 100.00000% conversion. No radiation, no residue, no byproducts, which means no shielding or protection would be necessary. Just pure and total conversion of matter to controllable energy. Crane, who had a cup of coffee halfway up to his mouth, stopped it in midair and stared at Seton. This, in Crane the imperturbable, betrayed more excitement than Seton had ever seen him show. He finished lifting the cup, sipped, and replaced the cup studiously, meticulously, in the exact center of its saucer. That would undoubtedly constitute the greatest technological advance the world has ever seen, he finally said. But if you will excuse the question, how much of that is fact and how much is fancy? That is, what portion have you actually done, and what portion is more or less justified projection into the future? About one to ninety-nine, maybe less, Seaton admitted. I've hardly started. I don't blame you for gagging on it a bit. Everybody down at the lab thinks I'm nuttier than a fruitcake. Here's what actually happened. And he described the accident in full detail. That's the works, Seaton concluded tensely. As clearly as I can put it, what do you think? It is an extraordinary story, Dick. Really extraordinary. I understand why the men at the laboratory fought as they did, especially after your demonstration failed. I'd like to see it work myself before discussing further actions or procedures. Fine. Great. That suits me down to the ground. Get into your clothes, and I'll take you down to the lab on my bike. If I don't show you enough to make your eyes stick out a foot, I'll eat that motorcycle. Clear down to the tires. As soon as they arrived at the laboratory... Seaton assured himself that the Watsitron was still running and arranged his demonstration. Crane remained silent but watched closely every movement that Seaton made. I take an ordinary piece of copper wire like this, Seaton began, 
and I dip it into the beaker of the solution. Okay. Note the marked change in its appearance. I place the wire upon the bench, like this, with the treated end pointed out the window. No, don't do that. Point it toward the wall. I want to see the hole made. Okay. So the treated end pointing toward the brick wall. This is an ordinary 8-watt Redeker cell. When I touch these lead wires to the treated wire, watch closely. The speed is supersonic, but you'll hear it whether you see what happens or not. You ready? Ready. Crane riveted his gaze on the wire. Seaton touched the wire with the Redeker leads, and it promptly and enthusiastically disappeared. Turning to Crane, who was staring alternately at the new hole in the wall and at the spot where the wire had been, he cried exultantly, Well, Downing Thomas, how do you like them potatoes? Did that wire travel or didn't it? Was there some kick to it or what? Crane walked to the wall and examined the hole minutely. He explored it with his forefinger, then, bending over, looked through it. Well, he said, straightening up, that hole is as real as the bricks in the wall, and you certainly did not make that by sleight of hand. If you can control that power, put it into a hull, harness it to the wheels of industry. Good God, do you know what you're offering? And you're offering me a partnership? Well, yeah, I can't even afford to quit the service to say nothing of setting up what we'll have to do for this job. Besides, working this out is going to be a lot more than a one-man job. It'll take all the brains of both of us, and probably a nickel's worth besides to lick it. Check. Well, I accept, and thanks a lot for letting me in on this. The two shook hands vigorously, and Crane said, The first thing to do, and it must be done with all possible speed, is to get unassailably clear title to that solution which is, of course, government property. How do you propose to do that? Well, it's government property technically, yeah, but it was worthless after I recovered the values, and ordinarily it would have been poured down the sink. I saved it just to satisfy my own curiosity as to what was in it. I'll just stick it in a paper bag and walk out with it, and if anybody asks any questions later, I'll just tell them it went down the drain the way it was supposed to. No, no, not good enough. We must have clear title. Signed, sealed, and delivered. Can that be done? I think so. Well, I'm pretty sure. There's an auction in about an hour. They have one every Friday. I can get this bottle of waste condemned easy enough. I can't imagine anybody bidding on it but us. One other thing first. Will there be any difficulty about your resignation? Not a chance. Right now, they all think I'm screwy. They'll be glad to be rid of me so easily. All right, then. Go ahead. The solution first. Check, Seaton said. And very shortly, the bottle, sealed by the chief clerk and labeled item QX47R769BC, one bottle containing waste solution, was on its way to the auction room. Nor was there any more difficulty about his resignation from the rare metals laboratory. Gossip spreads rapidly. When the auctioneer reached the one-bottle lot, he looked at it in disgust. Why auction one bottle when he had been selling barrels of them? But it had an official number. Auctioned it must be, then. One bottle full of waste, he droned tonelessly. Any bidders? If not, then I'll throw it down the... Seaton jumped forward and opened his mouth to yell, but was quelled by a sharp dig in the ribs. Five cents, he heard Crane's calm voice. Five cent bid. Any more? 
Going? Going? Seaton gulped to steady his voice. Ten cents. Ten cents. Any more? Going? Going? Gone. An item QX47R769BC became the officially recorded personal property of Richard B. Seaton. Just as the transfer was completed, Scott caught up with Seaton. Hello, nobody home, he called gaily. Was that the famous solution of zero? Wish we'd known it. We would have had fun bidding you up. Not too much, Ferdy. Seaton was calm enough now that the precious solution was definitely his own. This is a cash sale, you know, so it wouldn't have cost us much anyway. That's true, too, Scott admitted nonchalantly enough. This poor government clerk is broke as usual, but who's the we? Mr. Scott, meet my friend, M. Reynolds Crane. And as Scott's eyes opened in astonishment, he added, He doesn't think I'm ready for St. Elizabeth's yet. It's the bunk, Mr. Crane. Scott said, twirling his right forefinger near his ear. Dick used to be a good old wagon, but he's done broke down now. That's what you think. Seaton took a half step forward, but checked himself, even before Crane touched his elbow. Wait a few weeks, Scotty, and see. The two took a cab back to Crane's house, the bottle being far too valuable to risk on any motorcycle, where Crane poured out a little of the solution into a small vial which he placed in his safe. Then he put the large bottle carefully packed into his massive underground vault, remarking, We'll take no chances at all with that. Right, Seaton said. Well, let's get busy. The first thing to do is to hunt up a small laboratory that's for rent. Wrong. The organization of our company comes first. Suppose I should die before we solve the problem. I suggest something like this. Neither of us want to handle the company as such. So it will be a stock company, capitalized to $1 million with 10,000 shares of stock. McQueen, who is handling my affairs at the bank, can be president. Winters, his attorney. And Robinson, his CPA, secretary and treasurer. You and I will be superintendent and general manager. To make up seven directors, we could elect Mr. Vainman and Shiro. As for the capital, I will put in half a million. You will put in your idea and your solution at a preliminary, tentative valuation of half a million, and... But, Mart... Hold on, Dick. Let me finish. They are worth much more than that, of course, and will be revalued later. But that will do for a start. Hold on to yourself for a minute. Why tie up all that cash when a few thousand bucks is all we need? A few thousand? Think about this a minute, Dick. How much testing equipment will you need? Salaries? Wages? How much of a spaceship can you build for a million dollars? And power plants run for a hundred million up. Are you convinced? A few thousand. Well, maybe. Except right at first, I thought. You will see that this is a very small start, the way it is. Now to call the meeting. He called McQueen, the president of the great trust company in whose care the bulk of his fortune was. Seaton, listening to the brief conversation, realized as never before, what power was wielded by his friend. In a surprisingly short time, the men were assembled in Crane's library. Crane called the meeting to order, outlined the nature and scope of the proposed corporation, and the Seton Crane Company, engineers, began to come into being. 
After the visitors had gone, Seaton asked, Do you know what kind of a rental agent to call to get hold of a laboratory? For a while at least, the best place for you to work is right here. Here? You don't want stuff like that loose around here, do you? Yes, and there are reasons for it. First, privacy. Second, convenience. We have much of the material and equipment you will need already on hand, out in the hangar and the shops, and plenty of room to install anything new you may need. Third, no curiosity. The Cranes have been inventors, tinkerers, and mechanics so long that no planning board has ever been able to zone our shops out. And our nearest neighbors, and none are very near, as you well know, since I own over 40 acres here, are so used to peculiar happenings that they no longer pay any attention to anything that goes on here. Well, that's great. If that's the way you want it, then, it suits me down to the ground. Let's get busy. <laughs>